And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. I don't want you to protest, I don't want you to ride, I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! We'll get together, have a few laughs. Welcome to Iowa Talk, guys. I am your host, TP. And I'm your host, Theo. And we're back with our special anarcho-capitalist friend, special guest, Chun. For part two of an interview here. Yeah. Say hi, Chun. Happy to be back. All right. <laughs> Great to have you back, buddy. All right. So we ended the show, the last one, with a question that was leading off of we had gotten into what prevents crime from happening to individuals who can't provide private protection, right? And then, you know, form maybe community militias and stuff like that. And then we would mention private security firms uh, taking over, obviously, for pr- police protection. Communities would have to, or individuals would have to pay for their own protection. But one question I had is what happens when a private security company gets too big? Like, have you ever, has that scenario ever came up in any anarcho-capitalist uh, discussions that you know of? Or have you ever thought about that yourself? Well, I don't, I don't know why that would be any different than, like, any normal firm. Well, obviously, the ramifications yeah. might be a bit differently, obviously, because they would have some kind of weaponry or some kind of ability to be coercive if right. they wanted. But I think the way that the market operates in other industries, it would be similar in that there would be an opportunity there for mergers, there would be opportunity there for new entrants into the market, perhaps some kinds of partnerships, all kinds of... You know, different things. For example, right now, you know, pharmaceutical companies, car companies, all kinds of different companies, they form, even competitors, they form, you know, a special partnerships to develop certain products or to try to disrupt the marketplace maybe against the larger competitor. I mean, for example, you know, even going back to like the Mitsubishi Eclipse, right? And like that in the Dodge yeah. shadow back in the day, that was a partnership between Mitsubishi and Dodge to create a car. And they right. both got one out of it, right? So. You know, if they can do that, there's no reason why two competing or at least, you know, two two uh, defense contractors or security firms within a marketplace couldn't band together to try to um, defend them to, to defend their their interests against another. Now well, they I do mean, it all the time, like on the uh, the F-35 project. That was even, I mean, there were multiple oh, yeah. right. multiple right. companies that came together on that. They all bid. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. And work together. In fact. Correct. Yeah. So I mean, even even now, and in, in, uh, you know, if we think about today and in, in police forces, there's quite there's enough instances out there where you know federal or local law enforcement work together and missing persons cases and all kinds of other things. So there's no reason to believe that it would happen. Yeah. You know, in a private system. Well, that's a good point. I was just thinking, you know, Call of Duty, Advanced Warfare, K 
Kevin Spacey <laughs> taking over, you know, his private. <laughs> I mean, it'd be kind of cool. It would be cool. That'd but... be terrible. <laughs> the... Oh yeah, no, terrible. You're right. Not cool. Terrible. Yeah, yeah, not terrible. Yeah. If my mind serves me correctly, the FBI was predated by the Pinkertons. Oh yeah, yeah, and they were yes. they were a private in, uh, investigation. Yes. Uh, firm that down. Yeah. they were incredibly yeah, they efficient at going, you know, across the west or or what mm-hmm. have you, anywhere, you know, really, and finding finding people. Yeah, finding and depending outlaws. on your perspective, depending on your perspectives, I mean, I think that there's mixed reviews on the Pinkertons, but I would say also uh, part of that comes with the 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 special privilege they had as being a government contracted firm to kind of as an extension of their arm it's similar to you know how places like blackwater or wh- however whatever mercenary group you want to pick are similar today where you know to diffuse responsibility in the middle east the government instead sends private contractors out there because then sure. they can disown them when they do something wrong so Pinkertons sure. in that same case they're given special power to to go and to you know and, and to act as an agent of the state you know, yet they're still a private firm, right? It's kind of its perverse incentive there. I sure. think that wouldn't exist necessarily in a, you know, in a non-state society. There could be a perverse incentive, you know, with companies like Blackwater and whatnot too. But I'm sure that no, we'll, we'll, wow. we'll, we'll never see the uh, details of those contracts. A lot of people made some money <laughs> on that. Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah. So, moving on with this. <laughs> Unless you got anything else to say about that. No, I'm, I okay. think I... I yeah. All right. So you earlier you had mentioned, you know, adults. We, I mean, even now, like, we are the owners of our own body, right? We are the masters of our own domain, of our own bodies. Nobody has the right to tell us what we can and can't do with our own bodies and what we can and can't put into it and this and that, right? That's our, our liberties. Our God-given liberties is being born, right? But you had also mentioned when it comes to children... There's obviously a line there where children children can't make decisions for themselves. That's why they need adults and, and uh, guardians, right? Parents and guardians. So, what would the age of consent laws work? How how would those work in an and and cap society? I think that's a great question. I mean, it's it's kind of one of these things where it's almost a matter of perspective. In that, when do you consider a child an adult? Right? I think we've operated for yeah. so long under the, the the idea that they're an adult at 18. So I'd expect that it would be similar to the, you know, tomorrow. If, if tomorrow became Ancapistan, I would say the majority of Ancapistan, or at least the majority of whatever this geographical region, which we would consider this non-country, right? That's kind of weird to talk about, but I would assume <laughs> that it would be 18. Like just because that's what's in the cult, it would be totally cultural. You it know, would be cultural. Well, it still is. Look, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, we'll, yeah, exactly. You know, it, yeah. it all depends on the culture there, and stuff. There are plenty of places, folks, where fifteen-year-old girls are uh, well beyond marriage age. Ve- very true, yeah. and I think also, you know, since we've kind of diffused, uh, I guess, the responsibility of the child in in like in life, right, or or at least like what we would consider a standard adult responsibility. We, we continue to push that further and further into older age, right? What I'm saying is, you know, an 18 year old today is expected to do much less than an 18 year old 50 years ago was. Yeah. Isn't so that I think, crazy? I, so I think like if we were having this conversation in the early 1900s, then probably it would be a different answer. Maybe it would be 15 because 15 year olds 
were expected to do more adult things back then, and you well, know, and their not life to be crude, their like, life expectancy was way exactly, less. Yeah. yeah, and not to be crude, like they were having kids earlier and, and, and things like that. And now, when we look back, we think how gross that is. But if we kind of transport ourselves back into the it the nineteenth century or something, it makes complete sense because because only dies at forty years old. Yeah, it dies a TB at 22, you know what I mean, or something like that, or exactly. you know. So, so I think that it's it would change with the culture, and um, you know, I would hope to see it at 18 because that just makes sense to me. But I, I don't know. I, it would, it, I guess, what depend it, on the community. For sure, it would depend on the community. Depend on what the expectation uh, of the that individual would be based on their age, like what kind of responsibilities they're expected to. I mean, because who knows? We go back in a hundred years and. You know, if the state goes away and, and, and people take more charge of lives, perhaps a 16-year-old will be more ready to do something and they'll be considered older. It's kind of gross, honestly, to think about it a little bit, right? Because then you're – because as I'm saying that, that, that means then, okay, then if you're 16, then it may be in this – in 100 years, it's not bad for a 30-year-old to date it. But right now, we're thinking that's disgusting and those people well, should get the wood chipper. But, you know, I think – I but mean, I, yes, I, but I th- obviously pedophiles should get the wood chipper, but in our society – if it was in a uh, if it was in a a situation where life was that rough where your life expectancy was low obviously you know things would change human na- human nature is to survive right and adapt yeah. we're the most adaptable creatures on the planet to put it in perspective the there's earth. a farm that was a homestead one of the early homesteads in our county uh one round trip plowing your like one row with you know the the hull behind plow. The original John Deere. Yeah, with some oxen was a 14-mile round trip. Whew. You know, that's, that's real hard work. So Now you got 80 rows. Just, you're, yeah, like you said, the expectations were just completely different. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would also say that our world today is, is a lot more complex than it was back then. It's not Absolutely. saying that our lives are easier or harder, but they're different. In complexity, and I would argue that, you know, just our, our the fact that we are more, yeah, for sure, for sure. But they, but they bring upon itself different challenges. I would say more complex challenges that takes some higher thought processes. Like, and and that's not to say that, like, obviously, there's a lot of really dumb people around here. You go on Twitter for ten minutes and you <laughs> see it. But, but I think that it's, I think it's more difficult to navigate the world today, and just just from a complexity standpoint, like. For sure, physically, it's easier to live today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I would yeah. say, by, I'd say that we're very, under different pressures. But. Yeah, sure, absolutely, yeah. By a very wide margin, uh, you know, oh, different, yes. different pressures, and it, yes. it's easier. I want to change up the question subject a little bit here. If we yeah, may. I think you answered that pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Let's morals and stuff. So, so let's think in yeah. terms of geography here and like what we know. As so far as like borders, yeah. As far as borders and more importantly, defense. So, for instance, the United States uh, has a, a, an incredibly large border with Canada, um, and really globally, you know, an incredibly large border with Mexico. And then is bordered by two oceans. So how do you how do you suppose a place like that could provide a common defense in an ANCAP scenario? 
so are we talking specific like what we would call the United States of America right yeah, now, like yes. our landmass, or just one in general? Yeah, uh, ours, or yeah, even a even a let's say a larger globally larger one in general. See, a superpower. I, 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 right. I only the only reason I ask is because I think the United States has a very unique position in the world, like from a defense standpoint. I think, I think it's been incredibly I, advantageous. Yeah. I, I, absolutely, it's a, it's a, it's one of the major sources of our power, right? Like we've been removed from the wars of Europe, the wars in Asia. Yep. We have natural borders and natural defenses in both great yep. oceans. Over here in Iowa, in Iowa, we have the Mississippi River, which right. which Mighty drops, which drops. I want to say like fifteen hundred feet over the course of two thousand miles or something like yeah. that. The Congo River, over the course of 700 miles, drops, you know, a few thousand feet. Right, yeah. So another, and then that goes into another body of water that the United States, the Gulf of Mexico, that completely Mm -hmm. borders the United States, you know, on one side. Exactly. So very, very unique and advantageous. Yeah, Yeah, and the U.S. has has very unique terrain, or at least least in that... um, unique within itself right like it, it changes like you have the arid south uh, the southwest and you know very mountainous northeast you have actually even the some of the mountainous parts of the south and you know it's just it's it's very easy country to defend in that like as an invading country not only do you need to logistically get yourself across the oceans unless you're canada or mexico right. you have to get yourself across the oceans and then also set up some kind of forward operating base with those crazy appellations and shit but oh, yeah. i love the um, logistics of that yeah keeping but it like supplied too. right but to generally ask answer the question about common defense is that's kind of what we've been talking about in you know, community and these defense firms, state militia, or like what we would consider a state militia, but maybe yeah, a private of. militia in this instance. But, you know, it, let's just say you're living in, so like how would you common defense the, the city of New York, right? Like I think we can use this real example here. So we're living in the city of New York, and New York is broken up into like four or five different sections, just say hypothetically, you know, for Staten Island and Bronx and Queens and Right. You know, give me another one, whatever, it doesn't matter. Brooklyn. Yeah, in Brooklyn, right? So, you know, you have a major defense company that works in Manhattan and has a bunch of missile defense systems up on the great big skyscrapers because that's a great place to put them because the planes are going to fly that high and they're going to drop bombs and shoot missiles from up there. You know, so why wouldn't you put missile defense systems on top of, you know, the Empire State Building? Um, Nobody can profit off of that and employ people. Correct, and, and then and then even the the neighboring boroughs, they still benefit from that air cover because you know there's a certain halo of defense that surrounds it, and I don't think I don't think that in the heat of the moment, right? What as the missiles coming in, that that defense agency is going to be like, oh wait, we're actually running an analysis. We think it's going to land in Brooklyn, <laughs> so we're not going to fire, right? I don't Let think go, that boys. they would. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they they would do that. And even if they had the ability, they they would still have like they they could very well have, you know, families in Brooklyn or you know from the company that that works there because they're going to live in the city or around the city because well, yeah, they got to travel to work. And yeah. not to mention, they don't want to have all of the you know the city of Manhattan or the the borough of Manhattan has every you know interest in keeping roadways through Brooklyn or Queens or wherever open because their citizens so their, need to get in and out. Yeah, so they would still infrastructure. They would still feel incentivized also, most likely, I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but they would likely still feel incentivized to, to intercept 
you know, there's bombs, there's missiles, and they defend that area. So there, there would be. It, this kind of breaks into also where it's like, okay, what if you're poor? How do you defend yourself? Because, but there would be some kind of halo of protection that being able to take advantage of, and and that for sure, like you know, right now, how do poor people get anything? Like, there's companies that cater to them specifically, right? And, 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 we, and, and it, we touched on that a lot on the last episode towards the end there. So and and what and like, let's say even like kind of the get out of the city if if you're living in Appalachia. Like you know, West Virginia, they're they're not, you know, there's some, there's some wealthy people in West Virginia, but the most the majority of the state, you know, is working poor. Dirt um, poor. Yeah, yeah, they're not gonna they're they're not gonna be able to afford some, you know, some high tech defense company to come in there to protect them. But they have natural terrain and years of experience there. Um, yeah. I think that that would yeah, be a guns. freaking nightmare. And, yeah, guns. and guns, it, guns, you know, it would be an absolute nightmare. To go in and mess, yeah, well, which they'll never get tired and they're never hungry. But like, <laughs> but what? I, but what I'm saying is that it would be an absolute nightmare for any kind of army going through there. I mean, it's like Taliban times ten. You know, right? I was just you know going mean? to say, so, it, you know, it's it it is slightly reminiscent of stories of <laughs> Afghanistan. You know, I mean, you're right. You're it, talking it about people even, that yeah, have been around be. there for, I mean, really thousands of or years. Or even like, it'd be no even, different. Yeah. Even you go to Vietnam, right? I, you know, course, I, yeah. I think, I think even there would be instances probably where there would be support from outside to defend. Because, like, if let's just say, you know, there's Canada is an up and coming national superpower, and you know, America is now and Pakistan or whatever, it's broken into sections of communal entities or maybe a couple states here and there. Uh, their neighbors, like Mexico, even so, the remnants of whatever the United States is, if there still is part of the country, has incentive so that to see an expanding Canada stopped. So why would they not also then say, hey, you know, we're going to provide, you know, some material aid to, you know, these poor people in Wisconsin to resist the, the yoke of this foreign aggressor. I mean, that happened in, in North, in Vietnam. I think it was a little different because it was communism versus capitalism. But yeah, I'm yeah. more of you know, a global there, type. Scale. Right, and it's happening in Ukraine right now, where the U.S. is is intervening purportedly to defend democracy. There, we know that's not true, but yeah. But either <laughs> way, true. but um, but uh, either way, the the outcome is still the same, in that they are providing weapons and funding. Yeah, that I I assume at least a little bit of it is getting to the troops. I don't know how much of it, you know, but uh, but still, what I'm saying is that you know, I, if if by chance this community is not able to provide its own security or at least not able to source its own security then it's not against i guess it's not out of the realm of except uh, you know of possibilities that some kind of philanthropic giving or something like that or or some kind of not even that even just self-interest giving from another country would would help supplement that as well but but i think like i think that it it would be pretty obvious fairly quickly that any kind of massive land incursion into what was once the United States is a folly just from the size. Difficult, yeah. Yeah, this the size of the country and and a the, bunch the of renegade rednecks. Okay. Exactly. I was going to say the hardiness of the people. There's a lot of well, there's a, some there's of a them. huge there's a culture even even though we're filled with a bunch of losers nowadays, we still have <laughs> a pretty big culture of just straight up gun loving, God fearing 
or even non-God-fearing, just crazy people that love their guns and making bombs and stuff. And I think as they soon as that stuff goes shine, out, the, they love their bonfire. They love the way they live, and they don't want anybody the, to the internet exi- the, the, the internet exists, and so does the anarchist cookbook. So, I mean, well, I, it's been around for a while. So, yeah. Well, that 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 answer that's pretty good. It's Absolutely. More, so between the last episode and this, I think that answers that pretty decently. Uh, so moving on. One thing you'd said in there about like the roadways, they would you know it behoove the other groups or whatever if they were more stronger to help keep the infrastructure open. So how would the society or societies take care of their community, like the roads and infrastructure, like you know, uh, logistics with, say, meat or you know, food in general or goods? I mean, yeah, I, I would assume it would look. Sorry. I would assume it would look a lot like Somaliland. Right where they the, the communities pay for their own schools and they maintain their own roadways and shot and you know they help all that stuff out. They're not you know public or nationally recognized as even anything at all, but they're a pretty good yeah. example of I guess anarcho capitalism. Really, if you look into it, I think. Yeah, I think I think there could be done a lot of ways. I yeah. mean, I think obviously there would be some roads that would be privately owned and work much like. Something like I don't know if you in Iowa you ha- if you call them turnpikes, but like in Pennsylvania we have toll roads and we have a, this, this interstate road that goes, you know, across the street across the state, like from from east to west and also north to south, called the turnpike, the Pennsylvania turnpike, and it's just this big state-owned and operated interstate monstrosity roadway. Yeah. yeah, I mean, however, that being said, you know, aside from the fact that they overcharge us for a registration and they charge the shit out of us for tolls. The road, the, the, the toll road is generally in great shape. I mean, aside from the fact they're always working on it in the areas that are completed, it's a nice road to drive on. Well, that's right. Good. Yeah. So, so there would be roads similar in that they would be owned by private individuals or companies. They might be told, told they might be, Hey, you got to pay for a sticker to put on your car, you know, and to drive on it, which is like some kind of, usage fee yearly or monthly or whatever. Like, I'm sure there would be a smattering of it. I'm sure there will also I could see that there would be some kind of, uh, you know, what, it's like some kind of I don't, I don't want to say community, but some kind of trade group perhaps where they say, okay, well, we're a bunch of private road owners. We're going to band together in a single entity and this is the, the overall standard that we're going to apply to our roads you know, we're going to charge X amount of dollars per month to drive on them. However, the sticker will let you drive on all of these roads. And it could be also that communities would, you know, within your HOA or whatever, you would, would pair to, like maybe even the city of New York, you know, the city would exist. Like there would be some kind of board of directors, perhaps, you know, of the major business owners within the city or major landowners or some kind of spattering of community leaders or whatever that would then also sit on a committee together to kind of manage these roads or, you know, I think that there's a million different ways to kind of think about how they do this. And I think Walter Block does the the most, it probably has the most compelling argument about how privatized roads would work. I can't, the the name of the book is, is, is uh, escaping me, but he did write extensively about it. But, you know, I think, I think he's wrote a lot about a lot of private, Yes, lots of things, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. His like, I think like a lot of what his focus on scholarly work is like. Okay, we he knows we have the moral argument that anarchism in the end of the state is the correct path, like morally and justly, right? Sure. How would it work then? Like, how do I justify it to the people that say, "Oh, well, doesn't that just mean that 
we wouldn't be able to build roads, right? And as, you know, as <laughs> I had to throw this in here because I always think it's funny, but uh, Eric July, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy. He's, a, he's an anarchist, uh, like, culture guy. He's um, He just actually just launched a comic book company within the last couple of days. Uh, but he's he's uh, often on the blaze um, with uh, Elijah, I forget his name, Elijah Schaefer. Um, and he's got a he's got a podcast, and he always says he says fuck those ho ass roads, man, because it's like it's like a, it's a, supposed to be a gotcha question for for anarchists, and it's like yeah. really like we can't figure out how to pave horizontal surfaces to go from one place to another. Like, like come on, like we fly planes and stuff, we got satellites up in the air, we can figure this one out. Yeah, but, and that's not to put that into question, TP, but you know, I think like there's just um, a lot of different ways that it could happen. And, and I think it would really just depend on the community and the culture within that geographical area that no, we're talking about. But. No, you didn't put down the question. It was just a question. You know, I'm sure other people had that question. So that's why I asked it. So, I mean, I think, uh, I think a, a lot of, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think, uh, the income tax was in, it was, uh, instituted in 1919. Is that correct? Uh, uh, earlier yeah. than that, nineteen thirteen or something like that. For the okay, income but, tax. Yeah, yeah so but, but my point nineteen thirteen, nineteen sixteen, anyway, go ahead. So my point is is that New York had roads before that. Yes. Right? Before there was major taxation and they were built not necessarily by like the government, that but they they were paved and they were created and it's been done like that for, for years in Some America. Of the best so in I the think, world. And and even Some if of the you best look in down, the world, right? Yeah. Right, and if you if you go down to Florida today, yeah, and you look at you know at you look at Disney parks, right? Like Disney parks, technically those roads are state parks. I didn't know this after it, it wasn't until like them and him and DeSantis, DeSantis and Disney started getting in their shit. But <laughs> but like the road the roads on Disney property, they're technically state roads, but they were all paved for and paved by Disney and maintained. And if you've ever driven down there, roads are great. Yeah, they're they beautiful are. roads. Yeah, they're they smooth as shit. Fantastic. There's a lot of there's a lot of asphalt out there. There's a lot of places to go. Easy turns. Everything makes sense. Yep. And that's complete. That's a. I mean, that's kind of a terrible company nowadays. But they did a great job. You know, so they did a great job of being totalitarians of their little part of Florida. Yeah. Right, are. and that's. But what I would say is, I mean, you as a private owner. That's that's how you would treat your property too, uh, you know. You're the you're the king of your, you know. You guys are sitting out in your shed right now. I think yeah, that's on your if I had your a land, right? Magic Kingdom. Yeah, it's a there. it's a shack. There it is. Yeah, we're on just a shack in the middle of nowhere, out in the that's corner. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, that's TP's castle, and he's the king. That's so. right. Well, actually, this is Theo's castle. Mine's the outhouse next door. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta take what you can get, you know. Yeah, hey man, I'm I'm I'm, I'm happy with what I can get, right? <clears throat> there you go. Four walls and a roof. So, moving on, that was that was answered pretty good. So. What is an ANCAP's thoughts on the Constitution and the American Revolution? Do you think it was a step in the right direction or another attempt at statism? I think the Constitution is a failed document. I put almost zero stock in it other than just being fascinated by it, I think. I think it's interesting. It's fun to, you know, theorize around it, you know, because I do, you know, I love America. I'm American. You know, I am through my through and through. I love America. Um, too. I I like to talk about it. it's very interesting, right? Because it has such a 
a, a huge impact on your life. Uh, at least it should. I think it's um, it's widely disregarded by who we would call our ruling class. I a don't think it's yeah. federal government. Yeah, they've been yeah, wiping I, wiping their snot with it for a long time. While while I don't put any stock in how it should limit my behavior, I also don't think that it's wrong to also to then judge that ruling class by the document for which they're supposed to rule you with right so the idea of the constitution being this limiting factor on their power it's totally within your right to judge them based upon that document while simultaneously thinking that it has zero power over you because i didn't sign it right and i didn't take an oath to it i took an oath to it when i joined the marine corps you took an oath to defend it but i'm not in it anymore so i don't give a shit about it now no man, that, that's not what the oath keepers would tell you, brother. I don't, I don't care what the oath keepers say. <laughs> I'm not the oath keepers. I didn't sign a, I didn't sign an oath to them either. Yeah, I didn't so sign up for that it. either. Yeah, they've tried to get me, and I'm like, no, no, no thank you. No sir. offense, the oath keepers reading this. Or yeah, no offense, you guys. Brother. I think you know they do a lot of good things, a lot of good communication, helping a lot of guys, but got a bad rap for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. was it like that? Lightsider Spooner says he says the Constitution. Either um, it either like basically I, I can't remember the the it right off the time I had, but basically what we're saying is that it either like created the government that we had have today, or it failed to stop it from becoming what it is today. And either way, it's not fit to exist. Is what he says. It's basically the same point. Okay. Yeah. Basically, what he says is okay. Well, the the Constitution either authorizes this government we have, or it failed to stop it. Who is that? Again? So, I mean, I Lysander Spooner. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. 19th yeah, century. he's a yeah anarchist. Really interesting guy. Uh, you know, not to get off on a tangent, but he created a. Uh, he's a reason why there's a uh, monopoly on mail for the USPS because he created a uh, a competing service that was better and cost less. Really? So the government oh. gave the he gave the US <laughs> US Postal Service a monopoly because of that. But but then <laughs> I mean I think to your other point uh, or at least your other your first question rather about the revolution is I have you know I have a great admiration for the. For the uh, for the colonists back then, I think oh, what yeah. they did was just insane. Strong I, people, I awesome. It, Strong people. Yeah, I, I think I kind of take um, I think I take like Murray Rothbard's kind of view of it, um, where he has admiration for the colonists for the for the independence fighters, but at the same time he despises people like Washington and a lot of the other founding fathers because they essentially took a libertarian revolution and turned it into an oligarchic revolution just a homegrown one like i think um like i don't know if you've so then we made them gods we did and we we prayed to them essentially with all of our yeah monuments and all of our yeah yeah interesting thought yeah i mean it's not to say that they weren't interesting men they certainly were i mean i i i admire to to a certain degree i admire like thomas jefferson oh that's weird i just took a drink of jefferson and some other ones because i think like at its at, at its heart, his political philosophy, at least Jefferson's, is is very like it's very libertarian. And I would say, if I had yeah. to classify myself as how I look at the Constitution, I would say I'm way more of a Jeffersonian than a Hamiltonian. Likewise, but, oh yeah, likewise, yeah. yeah oh, as yeah. far as money, too, the theory of money in particular for me, right? And and Hamilton's insistent on a central bank. central bank, which I think is one of the worst things ever. As you know. It, funds the empire oh but, yeah um, absolutely but i mean i 
but I think back to the the colonists themselves. So you know, I, I think it's something a point that people often forget. You know, we we think about the start of revolution in 1776 when you know the founders wrote the Declaration of Independence, which to give them credit, that's probably the greatest political document ever written, at least in my mind. I think that is about about as libertarian as anything that's ever been written. That's a political document. I think up until that point, I guess maybe I'd say the Magna Carta, but right. this is like no shit. Like no, we're declaring our rights, which is the, it's a natural rights document. Which of course we talked about that earlier. And, the main, know, I, I believe, the all main, men created equal. Main premises of Magna Carta were that if the essentially, I guess to say it in layman's terms, if the king acted out, they could like take some land or something like that, right? Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, so I think, but what people forget is that, you know, the revolution started in 1775. You know, I, I think, and it started in the Northeast with this crazy Massachusetts it. people. Tun Tavern, and, and they're they're going up there and, you know, fighting the British over their, their guns. I mean, it started as essentially, you know, a gun confiscation fight where the yeah. the British sent regulars across the river from from Boston uh, mm-hmm. to go and seize the armory up in Lexington, Lexington I think, in Concord. Yep. And the the colonists responded and a couple of them got shot. But and then shot. that's where you but that's what you that's where the, the conversation in school stops is that oh two colonists got shot in the first exchange of gunfire. But then what happened after that was these militiamen harassed the British all the way back to Boston and beat the shit out of them. They had like men and wi- they had women and children running ammo to the militia people. It's like the most badass thing you ever heard. Like, yeah. A bunch of freaking farmers running around with rifles and they're just like hitting them and running away, hitting them and running away. And the British had no idea what to do. It was they were so effective that they forced them back into Brit into Boston and put them under siege for like the next year or so. Well, don't right? and then. They still had a bunch of veterans from the War of eighteen twelve there that were were working with the Native Americans and learning all those guerrilla warfare tactics. You're, That's how they learned how to do all you're that. You're thinking the French and Indian War. The, oh yeah, right. I'm French. sorry, the French and Indian War. Yeah, that yeah. eighteen twelve came later. I'll edit that. Yeah, out. <laughs> we had. Duh. Seeing as how we're talking about seventeen seventy five right now. Yeah, we literally had like I th- I think like if you examine records and and uh, obviously they're not one hundred percent accurate because they were talking how many years ago, but. You know, from a kill perspective, like the, the American colonists were way more accurate than the Redcoats ever were. And, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, and oh. oh my, uh, probably from living on the frontier. Yeah, absolutely. and uh, it was also also technique. They were taught to shoot differently, so yes. they were hunters. So they shot with their eyes open. The British were taught to close their eyes when they fired to keep the muzzle, keep the the, the gunpowder from going in their eyes. Oh yeah! From the oh, flint, when the flint knock would ignite, it would send smoke in your eyes. It would blind you temporarily. The old smoke the in British, the eye trick. So the British were taught to close their eyes and turn their head. So they were just it, it, all, for them. It was all volume of fire, whereas the colonists were accurate fire. Is and that that's why that's why guerrilla tactics were so successful during the um, you know during, popularized by the Patriot, of course. But but it was but most but best used by like pl- people like the. Like the Vermont militia, which is the uh, the Green Mountain Boys, and and a bunch of other, you know, uh, West, you know, West Pennsylvania and Kentucky militiamen. They're mm-hmm. some of the best shooters yeah, of Kentucky, all time. Kentucky. What was the wilderness like then? Oh my God, like, uh, tough life it had to be, yeah. right? Oh yeah, tough. that had been. Rough. But yeah, tough but people. I think like I like I have I have great admiration for those for those uh, 
maniacs or savages. Likewise. But, yeah. But I would say when I look back on the revolution, it's it's kind of I look back a little mel- melancholy in that like it started as this great libertarian revolution where like this taxation against representation is such a boring line. If it, it really what the war was about was just <laughs> local self government and secession and freedom, right? It wasn't right. about giving your power away to some central authority or something, like, which this ended up turning into. But I would say, you know, I I think the revolution was a great libertarian war. It's probably the only one in American history that I think <laughs> they started with total moral, you know, uh, high ground, or at least, like, impetus to, to do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, um... And what? if I put my tinfoil hat on real quick, maybe it got hijacked by the Rothschilds right at the end there. Oh, <laughs> no, I think it just got hijacked from people like Washington. Washington was the largest landowner in the co- in the in the country, and and there's a a lot of a lot of thought, at least judging by his writing and everything, is he right up until almost the war started, he was trying to get a uh, commission in the royal army. The the thing is though. Is that the British didn't give commissions to op- to like non-British-born officers? Like right. so, he could get he could he could be an officer in the militia in the, the army of Virginia or whatever. Like so, he was an army, you know, well, obviously he was, he was a general. He was also before that he was an officer in the British military. Remember? But he couldn't he couldn't get like so in, I don't know if there was right. some the kind Virginia of Virginia organization though. Is yes, but yeah, yeah, he wasn't. Here's the interesting wasn't, thing with that. In order, and I learned this at the lodge when I was a Freemason. In order to become a officer or go through the ranks of an officer in the British military at that time of the British Empire, you had to be a Freemason. Ooh. And we know how much of a big role the Freemasons played in helping create the country, right? Well, I think you had to 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 be to be an officer of the British regulars, you had to be you had to be born in England. Like he like like uh, Washington couldn't be a general in. No, he would the, never be uh, able to be. You're right. right. You're absolutely correct so, about that. And he couldn't so, get commissioned, but he still. I'm just saying he was still in that club, and it's just, it's just right. Well, he, he was in a club. He wasn't in the club. That that's what le- that yeah. that's his problem. That's 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 he a theory that wasn't that people, Buckingham Palace. It wasn't the right, right. club. Chap. He wasn't a real gentleman. Yeah, he yeah. was a good chap. In fact, right. they would think he was just some. A freaking redneck is what Most they would likely. think. That, that's what they looked at colon, yeah. colonists as rednecks back then, oh, which yes. is funny that they, that like from a literacy standpoint, we the the colonists were the most literal literate you know yeah. uh, country in the world, but <laughs> not the time. Nothing important happened there. Hey, and no state-run education there either. So, but anyway. Um, oh wow! Interesting yeah, yeah. point. Yeah, Driving yeah. it home. Look at that. Yes, I'm tr- I'm doing my best. So, but yeah, so yeah, you're, you're doing great. great. <laughs> but yeah, I I think. Like what ended up happening with the with from my perspective at least and you know from Rothbard's and I, I would suggest also there's this this guy named Prophecy J I'm TP I'm pretty sure I've told you about this guy before but he has a great Revolutionary War uh, series oh, yeah, on you, the Dangerous History podcast it's phenomenal I, yeah, I highly recommend I have it. To Dangerous some of this stuff. History podcast yeah. no affiliation none no affiliation but maybe we can no. maybe we can get him on the show have a conversation with him that would be very he's cool. a yeah. he's a cool guy. But um, but he talks about that how it was, you know, the revolution was hijacked by people like Washington and and Adams and everything that Jefferson. you know well, they whenever you have and Jefferson at to an extent, but they started off very revolutionary and they're thinking of independence, but then when it came to, you know, actually 
governing and, and kind of writing the theory around how the U.S. system would work, they became very unrevolutionary, and is that's it? kind of where. And it's super yes. weird that we like, like I said, that we, we. Is it true that Jefferson was in Paris? Stealing uh, during the Constitution writing, yeah, he wasn't in the country at the time. What about the war? During the war, uh, yeah. that's a good question. Was that I'm when he sure. went and stole the rice from Spain? He, he he might have been there trying to. He might have been the the uh, the ambassador trying to secure France or French uh, support for the war, perhaps. Oh, okay, but I don't know. I'm not sure. But I knew he wasn't there when the Constitution was drafted. But you know, to kind of I guess bring it home is that um, you know if I if I could choose, I think the Articles of Confederation were far superior than the Constitution ever was. I mean, I think the Articles of Confederation essentially did in practice what the Constitution was meant to do in theory, if that makes sense, right? Like, it it essentially didn't allow any chance of any kind of federal expansion, which that's purportedly what the Constitution was meant to do. Yes. You know, and, and, it, and it maintained this agreement between the states not to hinder interstate commerce in any way, shape, or form and to try to encourage it, right? So to kind of smooth over the fact that you have these 13 separate states. However, you don't want to have to have like a visa system to get in and out of them as you're trying to run goods from, you know, Pennsylvania to New Jersey. So it was doing everything that the Constitution was supposed to. The thing it wasn't doing was taxing funds to pay for the war that they just fought. But I would contend the problem is, is if they would have maintained state militias like the war started with rather than trying to raise this huge and vastly <laughs> unsuccessful other continental army, then you wouldn't have that problem in the first place. Yeah, that, that answers that, that pretty good. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of uh, nice comments for the fact that I just said the continental army was unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're going to get more comments about some other stuff you said, but who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as long as people are having a conversation, that's all we're happy about. So you would briefly touched on this a little bit when you were answering the last question but you talked about centralized banking and obviously you know we we've all expressed how we feel about centralized banks and how you know they're the devil right but how would economics work without a centralized currency which I, i'm pretty sure i know how you're going to answer this but i, I do want to know what your answer would be well Hold on. Let's explain for our listeners that may not know exactly how a central bank works real quick. June, if that's cool with you. Yeah, go for it. I mean, yeah. it's 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 pretty simple. I'll try to explain it real quick just in layman's terms. In layman's Which is all I know. Terms. All it is is it's a private entity that when Congress needs money, they Congress, you know, drafts a bill, they pass it or don't pass it but the ones that pass uh, require money to fund so there's a central bank to issue a line of credit to congress on behalf of the united states the people of the united states and they loan it to them at interest with interest yes correct let me break it down even more to a layman's term let's say in the scenario I have, I own the only apple tree in the world, or only apple orchard in the world, okay? You want some apples. I said, all right, well, how about we do this? I'll loan you some apples, but for every one apple that I loan you, you owe me two back. But 
You can't take the seeds from that apple to plant other trees, <laughs> and you can't give me some artificial homemade bull crap that's not an apple. So good luck owing me. And the government's like, that's a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else would be like, that's a terrible idea because now I'm essentially indebted to you forever. There's no way for me to ever repay you back. Debt slave. Yes. Got anything to yeah. add to that tune? Well, yeah, I would say like the, how the Federal Reserve works, like to kind of bring it home to the United States. Okay. is to create money. They don't just necessarily just print it, right? Like they can just do that, but to have it enter the market, they purchase securities on the open market. The open market being obviously the bond market, the stock market, or whatever you want to call it. Yep. And they add the corresponding funds that they just printed or they use the computer to make into the bank reserves of the commercial banks from which they bought their securities, bonds, or whatever from. What they right? buy? So then the bank, well, the banks they in it, they buy them on the open market. They buy it with the money that they're creating. But they so, have to inject. Yes. They have, that well, they created themselves. That, <laughs> Sounds like right, the right. greatest scam in the this world. Circular, circular reasoning. Well, right. What well, what I'm saying <laughs> is they have. To, I'm trying to say how does it get into the marketplace? They don't just like print the money and then fly a helicopter over a bank, just throw it at them. Like they, they do that in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but like from an accounting point point of view, there has to be another side of this equation. Like if you're doing any kind of accounting work, there's two sides to the, every it, transaction. But in, right. in reality, they're just and, numbers and paper, and it's all correct. And it's all yeah, it's all based on something. The belief you know, that I, it I think, has value because nothing's right. backed by gold. Well, the ruble. Well, it depends on who you ask. Value. Like uh, some Keynesians would say that the 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 value of the dollar is derived from the ability of the of the U.S. government to tax and to demand payment within those notes, and that's John where Maynard Keynes, right? And that's yeah. where that's where the value of the dollar is derived. But that doesn't make sense either, because then you're saying, "Well, I'm just printing the money, I'm giving it to you, then I'm demanding it back from you." Right? How does that create any value? It's just exactly. make it's made up, which it is. Like yeah. that's I would that's that's always my, you know, that's always my kind of go to is to say, "Well, that doesn't make sense because if I just take this piece of paper." And I write a five on it, and I give it to you, and I say, to pay me back for my services, now you have to give me that piece of paper, and now that ma- gives that piece of paper a value of five. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? That, so it's like that's that. That's what it is, this, though. That's I mean, but and with the other person, when I, when you hand that piece of paper to the other person, they have to have the understanding of yes, this is valuable to me. This is worth five tune yeah. coin. I mean, I think I think <laughs> it does make sense to think. I guess. Now that we are not coupled to a you know to a precious metal or some kind of durable good or something, that the fact that everybody in the world, you know, at the moment at least, recognizes the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, the reserve currency. Right. that in in and of itself does create some kind of value in that dollar because as a medium wow. of exchange, you can exchange that dollar anywhere very yeah. easily because anybody would just accept the dollar bill. Right. Yeah, you don't have to, to convert the it. World Reserve currency and, and also yeah. the petrodollar. Well, we talked Correct. about, we talked about, we in, the talked first, about that in, uh, in the first episode. Right. Yeah. 500 right. pound idea- bombs help out as well. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, having the, They're very persuasive. <laughs> the fact that the U.S. Navy is the is the naval force that protects the trade routes and we can just kill what? anybody on the face of the earth that we want to. You mean so. 12 yeah. nuclear-powered aircraft carriers Yeah, project yeah. a lot of power? Yep. A little bit, I'd some, say. Some people view it as threatening. They're, they're a force multiplier for sure. 
I w- so I want to tie it back in if I could with. Um, well, yeah, we didn't even answer, have him answer the original question, but go oh, ahead. Okay. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, in the 19th century, it was essentially like gold or silver is accepted everywhere, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then also, what was very tr- the paper that was traded mostly were certificates that were essentially redeemable in that gold or silver yes. issued by different banks, and. Essentially, people were responsible for themselves to make sure that they're not just depositing some stuff or, or getting some notes from some sketchy outfit. Some which bank that they've never heard of before, right? right? Which would be kind of a sketch deal. I would imagine, though, in an anarchist, capitalist society, currency would be just going back to that same thing, probably. I mean, gold and silver, platinum actual valuable metals that's never going to lose its its valuable val- valueness to man anything right? of value essentially gems right yeah could be precious For metals sure. anything of value Dry barter goods. systems would come in again so like once again that's how somaliland operates so you don't have money but hey i got this uh what is somaliland you never heard of somaliland no we should or i plan on doing a show on it so since after somalia <laughs> had you know black hawk down and all that stuff we pulled out they had that uh the dictator got assassinated by his own royal guard and then Somali split up again. And so far the Northern part of Somali right next to Ethiopia has done a pretty good job of maintaining its own, uh, individual sovereignty away from the state of sorts. Yes. And there are kind of multiple States. It's, there's still a lot of clans, tribal, tribal warlords out and stuff. Yeah. And they actually, like I said, so there's, there's parts of it that, uh, are, thriving very well like i said it's not internationally recognized as a country or anything so like i don't know how they i have to do more research into it so i'm not sure how well that's probably the first reason they don't like it is because it's people voluntarily coming yeah they don't they they totally kicked out central banks and want nothing to do with it yeah and and then like i said they they destroy well they do they they must have somebody there learned something but anyway, I, like I said, I've been doing more research on it just because we're we're do, working on that show about putting together what happened, why we were ever in Somalia, <laughs> why we tried to assassinate the president during a humanitarian mission. Because that was well, the most humane there. thing to do. Why else? Duh, we're saving the world. Or why we're still there. Yeah, we still have troops there? No. We're, we're still bombing them, yeah. So I was going to ask you because I know that, you know, the refrain, well, why don't you move to Somalia is typically an anti-anarchist thing that I get, right? Like, because Somalia sucks. Nobody wants to live there. Why the hell would you want to live there over America? So then obviously well, anarchism's dumb, right? Because right. that's a very what they say. central government there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what they'll say. I'm like, okay, but, you know, first of all, it doesn't make any sense for you to even ask that because the country of Somalia never had the living standard of the United States or right. anybody close to the United States has. Absolutely. But that being say, said, as soon as the government fell and the kind of the turmoil started to calm down, living standards in Somalia raced faster than it ever has in its history. Yes. Since they started tracking those kind of things once the government went away. So what I was going to ask you is when you brought up northern Somalia and that they were still kind of independent in a way. Yep. Like, I didn't. I didn't know that. I thought that they were kind of brought back under the umbrella of what we would call yeah. a state. Yeah. No, they. And I was going to ask them. 
Go ahead. And I was going to ask is where is the U.S. then operating? Because I know they're still bombing in Somalia then they have, regularly. It's, it's probably in the Republic of Somalia in the southern section. Oh, okay. Without knowing, and right? Probably even in the parts yeah. of Ethiopia. Because I think there's parts of Ethiopia that are still trying. Like, there's tribal disputes there on that border between Somaliland and Ethiopia. So I think there's still stuff clashes there every once in a while. But, I mean, they do a, a good job of protecting their own borders. Speculation disclaimer. What? I just. Oh. I mean, you know, as far as where they're bombing, you know, we. Yeah, we don't. I have no bomb. idea where they're bombing, so I'd have to look into that. But we'll do some more research on it. You want to hear more about it? Let us know. We'll know. We'll we'll get to it. But anyway, well, we got anything else? You want to hit on anything else about the? Uh, oh, what on money? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I think um, it would just. I mean, it would be like any other product. I mean, I think money in and of itself often is just thought, you know, just as, you know, it, it, it just kind of like in a very, like just a store of value. But I mean, it's still like, you know, it, 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 in an anarchist society, obviously there might still be U.S. dollars because who knows if any part, you know, if, if this somebody thing starts breaking it, up. Yeah, somebody might. And then people might still hold it. Still. Yeah. You, some people might still take trade in rubles or, pounds or whatever right francs it could be anything i think i think in an anarchist society it would be competing you know currencies and i think it would be incumbent or at least it would be beneficial for businesses to set themselves up to 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 be able to accept different modes of you know of currency because obviously right. they want to be able to expand their business to as many people as possible well, so they i'm sure they're doing that some... now with cryptocurrency exactly and 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 even you go to England right now, you can probably, like, I, I can't confirm this 100%, but it only makes sense to me that you go to England, you could pay for things in dollar bills. Yes. So there's no reason, like, and, and a lot of that has to do with just, you know, how the university, universality of the U.S. dollar bill. But that being said, there's no reason to think that if you live in Ancapistan and we have Ancapistan dollars, you know, and they're backed by a certain store of gold within my Ancapistan community, that I can't go somewhere else and be like, here is these Ancapistan dollars. Like you can turn these into this bank and you can get gold from me, from that bank. Right. And there are, and there are actually even online gold companies right now that give you a debit card. Right. So basically what you do is you you pay a certain amount of dollars and you get a store of gold within a bank or two, like I think that they centralize their gold deposits in like one or two different banks, and they give you a debit card, and you can you can pay in U.S. dollars against the gold that you have in this bank. Right? Yeah. So that could be a very simple way to get away around it too. Whereas, hey, you know, I have this, you know, I have a thousand dollars worth of gold or thousand something. You know, it maybe if I'm in Russia, it's you know, 7,000 rubles worth of gold, or if I'm in England, it's, you know, 1,500 pounds worth of gold or whatever it is. Right. But I have, I have like, I have a certain amount of ounces of gold in this, in this bank and I go somewhere else and I'm like, I have this many ounces of gold. If you take this card, you know, then you can, you can, I can buy this, you know, this, uh, this soda from you, you know, for what we would call today $2, but you would take, X amount of ounces out of Whatever the bank, or at least now you would now you would own X amount of ounces in gold, you know, in in principle because now I've transferred it to you. Now, like with, there there be an- a certain amount of like 
there'd be a certain amount of like, you know, obviously that that that, that seems kind of unwieldy when I say it, but you know, we're we're thinking in terms of how our financial system works today, and it wouldn't necessarily work right exactly yeah, that, that way. That was like one of the questions I was about to ask: is like, when ANCAP bank loan your gold out to make money off of it, like uh, the banks do nowadays? Probably. I mean, it, I think I think uh, they have. It, I I think that the reserves that they would have to hold would certainly. I think that the the expectations of reserves would be much higher. Like they would they would be forced to be able to produce like higher amounts of cash on demand or gold on demand than perhaps banks do now. I think I think the reserve limits are like five or ten percent right now, which is incredibly low. Like this Don't whole worry, fractional it's reserve banking. Dude, it's backed by the FDIC. Yeah, yeah. You're covered. But I, I think, <laughs> but yeah, I think like, I think even there, I, and, and I just, I saw this yesterday, and, and to be honest, I don't know a lot about it, but I think, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with who uh, Peter Schiff is. Yeah. Oh, of course. He, yeah. We talked about yeah, him. Yeah, calling so. it for decades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so he had, I think he operates a bank or something in Puerto Rico, and he has to have a certain amount of reserves on hand, which is much higher than a normal U.S. bank. So I don't really know, but the point being there, of course, that. is that he has he's expected to maintain much higher amounts of cash in reserve, and he still was able to loan out money anyway. It might not be oh, yeah, at course. such great amounts, but still, at the same time, it's like you know the way that interest rates are supposed to work, where it's kind of pricing hey. money out for you, right? Hey, is, is you, there would be go ahead. My father, interest rates. He paid something in the in excess of twenty percent in yeah. the seventies for his house. For his yeah, the first house that he bought. And honestly, if times are bad, that's not a, it, that out of a you know out of a line interest rate. It's not that crazy of an interest rate if times are bad. Well, right. And I and I I suggest as a as a topic for you guys uh, for your listeners is to kind of talk about interest rates and how money is supposed to work because I think it's something that not a lot of people understand and, and admittedly it's something that I'm not an expert on. Like I, I think I generally understand why the Fed is bad and what it does and why it's bad. Like, you know, it's easy to say the Fed's bad because it you know it funds all the terrible things our government does, but it's also bad because it distorts and destroys our economy. Right. Yeah. And, well, and hold on, let's name it. It's actually companies, right? Yeah, it's not part of the federal right. government. It's J.P. Morgan, City, Citibank, yeah, and, and you know Goldman and these. Oh other, yeah, Goldman Sachs. These yeah. other. But it, but in this in this instance, it's uh, Powell and you know well, Yellen was one of the Fed chairs and Greenspan right, right. and Bernanke and oh, all these yeah. ghouls that, that helicopter Ben. That's a good name for him, ghouls. That, that all the, these ghouls that purport to put their thumb on the scale and, and, and improve the economy when in fact all they're doing is enriching their friends and themselves. Well, well yeah. and I think the, the banks. Yeah. And I think the reason why it, it is set up to be, it's such a complicated, you know, it's not easy to understand is on purpose so that the, the common, common folk like us either get disinterested and we just, or we just, you know, it's too complicated. We don't want to understand this, and we don't know how bad we're getting screwed. Really, well, I, I'll, I'll quibble you for a, for just a small one. There is that I think that financial markets are inherently complex. You know, I think we're dealing with a lot of inputs, at least in the con- economy today. Where, but Mises does it need to be that say, way, though? Mises would say no, individual human action, the science of individual right, human action. Right. 
but there's a lot of competing interests and a lot of interlocked markets across the globe. I think it's going to be complex. I think the way yeah, the Federal yeah, Reserve the works is is purport is purposely obfuscated and and put behind a screen so that the common man doesn't understand it or doesn't think about well, it. And that's what but I'm I think, saying. This I think system has been built over decades. Well, I mean, but what I'm what, years, what I'm saying though, Tim, years to, to, no, I mean, what I'm saying is that it's going to be it's going to be complex no matter what. I think the 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 Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve system, the central banking system, adds an extra layer of complexity that distorts the market in a detrimental way. So I agree that it's that the Federal Reserve system, the central bank system, in the United States is complicated, and it seems to be for a reason, and it probably is for a reason. But all I'm saying is that the markets would still be complicated and would still and you would still need to be specialized in a way where not everybody's going to understand it, but at least, you know, I think it's something that everybody should have a basic understanding yeah, on. Should, you know, and that's an education standpoint. Yeah. One thing I'd yeah, like I to say and add on here is that, you know, you can go around the world and use dollars in so many places, for instance. I've traveled for pleasure to Central America, and you can just use your dollars everywhere. They take dollars. They have their own currency as well, but they take dollars. And particularly in Central America, <laughs> there are some reasons, you know, uh-huh. that is in tying into, you know, the financial agreements of, you know, Bretton Woods and all that, and the dollar is the reserve currency. But, and, and they're not the most innocent reasons. Does you it like have anything to do with like the eighties? As far as what? The people that were making lots of US dollars down there. Well, I yeah, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I'm just saying like you know, it is kind of blood money. There's yeah. a reason there is a reason that when you go to these other countries like, you know, in Central America and whatnot, they're not really interested in you. They do just kinda want, your, want your money. Yeah. And I, I, I don't blame them. I mean it's hey. Yeah. I don't like outsiders coming where I live either. Well, it's like the, the <laughs> resorts in Mexico and stuff. You know, you go to those all-paid resorts. Like, yeah, the people are great. They're yeah, paid to be great. Course. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the people are just really good people because uh, the workers, you know, those are good jobs for them in Mexico because the company pays for their uniforms. They uh, they usually have a room downstairs where they can they get fed by the Resort. hotel and stuff. Yeah, and everything. They, they get taken care of. So... They are happy to be there, and they, they like keeping their jobs. But anyway, I digress. So, all right. Well, yeah, that, that covered that quite a bit. Quite a bit. So I think that pretty much wraps us up. Hey, do you have any uh, – what what books would you recommend for the listeners? I'm I know glad you, that you said that. I was going to mention a couple and ask if uh, – I know you, we mentioned on the first – them. I know we mentioned on the first episode on money and banking – Yes. Right. Yeah. That's a good. That that I think that's a little bit more labor intensive. I think. So I think you know. I, a lot of times, I, to be honest, I I quite often I find uh, reading about money very boring. As much as I like money, <laughs> yeah. but reading about it can be very dry. And and there are some. There are. I mean, Murray Rothbard's treatment on it is pretty intensive. Um, there are some other ones out there. I'd have to. I I'd have to send you. Maybe I can send you a note. Um, economics you know, can, in one lesson by Henry that's, Hazlitt. That's one oh. of the best to start with. It's absolutely okay. one of the best books. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Good. Um, but from an anarchist perspective, um, I would suggest starting with the Anarchist Handbook. 
Michael Malice put it together over the last year or oh, so. Yeah. And it's oh, essentially wow. a co- it's a collection of he was talking like, about just a back. spattering of anarchists like from all sides. Like so you got to understand, um, like uh, you know, I calling myself an anarcho-capitalist. There are a lot of anarchists out there that would say I'm not an anarchist because capitalism is inherently un-anarchistic because it's based on hierarchies and hierarchies are then therefore everything is non- based on hierarchies yeah right that, that's, that's tribalism that, that's never gonna right go that's away. that's our that's our critique of what we would consider leftist anarchists or communist <laughs> anarcho-communists but yeah it's human nature but like in here in here he has people like bukunin and berkman and david friedman uh emma goldman uh you know murray rothbard of course uh, Lysander Spooner, like there's a bunch of, it's a great place to be there. I mean, I think you get a spattering of what would be considered right-wing anarchists, like well, I guess what I would be considered anarcho-capitalist, and then also like Emma Goldman, who you know, emigrated from the Soviet Union into the United States and was summarily kicked out of the country and sent back oh, to uh, the Soviet Soviet Union. And, really? Um, yeah, wow. and because she was a Lenin, she was like a, a fan of, you know, she was a Marxist. You know, so oh, she okay. believed in communism, oh, but she didn't believe in the state. She didn't believe in the state, right? Mm. Which communists Neither inherently, do I. if they if they believe in their own theory, then they are anti-state. But you know, it's just funny how it never quite gets there. But so when she goes, <laughs> when she went back to the Soviets, she was just um, horrified by you know, what was going on there with Lenin and Stalin and everything. And oh man, you know, but yeah. I so think she's that's an interesting the story. too. It always turned yeah. out that way. It wasn't the way they wanted it. Yeah. Weird, <laughs> weird exactly. how these things always happen. There's always but, somebody that wants power and they're willing to do nasty, horrible things for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the revolution is the next generation's problem, not right now. I mean, we, we now they have to centralize power to destroy centralized power or something like that. I don't know. I don't Whatever. Know. Yeah. Their economies are dumb. but yeah so anarchist handbooks are a good place for for anarchism and at least kind of get you to get your the the wet your palate there because you get you get them from all over the spectrum um economics in one lesson excellent book Um, highly recommend it for anybody that's interested in economics now you know uh of course if i didn't rep or if i didn't mention uh human action by Ludwig von Mises, then I would be. <laughs> I I'd have to forfeit my my card <laughs> here. But <laughs> the road to serfdom by Hayek. There you go. F. But Hayek. that being said, but that being said, uh, Human Action is a huge book. It's a hard read. Is it okay? So, so I suggest then is Choice by Robert P. Murphy. Okay. Is okay. essentially he takes that, puts that a modern spin on it, and it's a little easier to read. Okay. Uh, Robert Murphy, Robert, anything by Robert, his 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 book in chaos chaos theory is also good. Kind of touches on a lot of things we're talking about a uh, a non state legal framework and and those kind of things. I got um, I got one here. TP, if you have not read this, you need to read this. Thinking that you have probably read this. Let's see, The Law by Friedrich Hayek or uh, Friedrich Bastiat. Yes. Yes. It's in a yes. very short read. Have you read it, TV? No, I have not. It's a very short read. Okay. It's in early, early English, but I don't know. Chun, what do you think? I think it's a, to me, it's a staple. It's a must read. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can get them in like little pocket versions oh, yeah. of them too. Yeah. Very short, but everything that you read in that, I mean, 
I didn't really find anything that didn't reason pretty. I mean, reason true. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, I will definitely check it out. Wow, oh, there's a few books here I'm gonna have to check out. So, and and I guess one more since we talked about the revolution, um, but um, Murray Rothbard, like I said, I had mentioned that he wrote a book about it for New Liberty. Um, oh, I believe you mentioned that it's in the a, last episode too. Yeah, it, uh, that one is more or less like laying out a libertarian society and answering a bunch of questions about it. Okay, so that's a yeah. good one. And then conceived in liberty is his book about the yeah. revolution. And it's a, it's a lot of many volume work, uh, phenomenal read. A lot of, like I said, I had mentioned uh, that one podcast about it and he pulls a lot of his material the from dangerous history. Mer- right. So yeah. he pulled a, he pulled a lot of his material from, you know, the great Murray Rothbard in, in that book. So okay, I would suggest cool. it if you're, if you're interested in it. Chun, did you read Rothbard's betrayal of the American right? No, I, I I started reading uh, the New Right by Michael Malice, and he references it a bunch okay. in there. So, Excellent. but yeah, Excellent it's book. Uh, I have that's read a, it. I have read it. Excellent book. A lot of a, a lot of he's he wrote a bunch of articles along, like not not necessarily along with the book, but after his failed paleo strategy, you know, with uh, trying to appeal to the um, to the redneck of the time, <laughs> I guess in the early nineties, <laughs> and how like I, was it was it Buckley or that that. That betrayed him, or like, who am I thinking of? Am I thinking of? Am I mixing William, him up with William um, H. Buckley? Yeah, uh, I yeah. Think where, he was where, one of the f- initial neoconservatives. Yeah, so right? essentially, interesting. Like, I he think, worked for the CIA too. Yeah, right. So I think That's the idea weird. here was that uh, Rothbard would champion the cultural right, where if they were, if they also then kind of looked at economics the way that he did, you know, from a libertarian perspective and to try to shrink the state and then they just like stab them in the back in the end <laughs> absolutely and every which is go ahead sorry which I, in libertarian circles that is his the great criticism from a lot of libertarians of murray rothbard is his embrace embracing the the i guess the the paleos the the very the hard writers right but they failed to remember that in the 60s and 70s he he courted the leftists, the anti-war leftists, and they stabbed him in the back too. So yeah, it's just being I a libertarian and anarchist, just YouTube. being fucked by everybody all the time. So yeah. <laughs> just the way it goes. Yeah. yeah, we're used to it. There we go. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, I think the, this was very, very educational, very informative, productive conversation. Yeah. So. June, once again, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I think we will have to have you on some more in the future about some other stuff. Who knows? But, you know, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Iowa Talk Guys. For now. For now. Uh, f- follow us you know, on Spotify, Audible, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Podbean. And then also, if you guys want to drop us a line, you can hit up T- uh, Theo and I. I'm at I'm TP at iowatalkguys.com and I'm Theo at iowatalkguys.com yep well thanks again June thanks June it was a pleasure thanks guys alright man signing off take care